From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From the days of the wild, wild west to modern times. I think the myth that Westerns create about gunfights, shootouts, and duels, and so forth, exaggerates and misleads in terms of where the real levels, of highest levels of violence were. Colorado's history with guns has been complicated. Today, the Purplish team explores the past and how it informs the present. Colorado became a state almost 150 years ago. And all these years later, we're still debating the Colorado way on guns and the role they should play in society. This year, we could and we probably will see the issue once again jump out front and center. Plus, CPR's continuing investigation into how Colorado's red flag law is inconsistently used and the impact it has on people in different communities. Among Colorado's most common wildflowers, high in the tundra, is a bright and showy bloom that looks somewhat like a buttercup. The little yellow alpine avens is adapted to high altitudes. Its leaves are thick to retain moisture in cold and drying winds. And a red pigment allows the avens to sprout early and last a little longer in a very short growing season. In fact, the leaves turn a beautiful red late in summer and provide a pop of color amid the browning tundra. Animals are generally not attracted to the flower because it contains a lot of bitter and potentially harmful tannin. So why does the perky little pica gather bright yellow avens? It turns out that tannin actually preserves the other grasses and flowers stored in pica hay piles. After the tannin degrades, the pica does finally consume the avens' blossoms. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Coble & Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. From the founding of Colorado to modern mass shootings, there's been many changes to state gun laws over the years, and it continues to drive debate in the current legislative session. We're going to explore that history and ongoing influence in today's show with the Purplish team. CPR public affairs reporters Spencer Berkland and Andrew Kinney. Even if you're not a big fan of Westerns, you can probably picture this scene. Wretched slugs. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game. Two dudes face off in the middle of a dusty street. Their hands hover over the guns on their hips, and the townspeople run for cover. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You dig. Actors like Clint Eastwood and John Wayne made this version of the rough and tumble life on the frontier familiar to so many of us. Guns aren't going to be my boy's life. Why do you always have to spoil everything? Bang! Bang! bang. A gun is a tool, Marion. No better, no worse than any other tool. An axe, a shovel, or anything. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. Hollywood and Westerns have created in our minds what the Wild West was. The Rifleman! Starring Chuck Connors. In this world, there are armed men in every saloon and on every street corner. Loners defending themselves in a dangerous world. I think the myth that Westerns create 
about the violence or the sort of the levels of violence and the sort of ubiquity of gunfights, shootouts and duels and so forth exaggerates and misleads in terms of where the real levels, highest levels of violence were. Behind the Hollywood curtain, though, life on the frontier was more nuanced. There was a lot of gun violence, but it wasn't usually settled in the streets of small towns. In territories like Colorado, guns were an everyday presence in rural areas, but their use in towns and cities was a lot more limited and even regulated. Dodge City, in fact, in its heyday as a cattle town, the levels of homicidal violence were much lower than in many other parts of the American West, for example, and largely because, I think, in Dodge City, they had not always effectively put in place certain kinds of gun control regulations. When cowboys came to town, they tried to disarm them so that when there was drunken, disorderly conduct, of which there was a great deal, it didn't necessarily lead to shootings. Colorado became a state almost 150 years ago. And all these years later, we're still debating the Colorado way on guns and the role they should play in society. Should gun laws be based on the idea that individuals alone need to be able to protect themselves at all costs? Or should it be more wary of the potential harm that those individuals can do when they're armed and unstable? This is a debate that has simmered at the Colorado Capitol for decades now, at times flaring up into major discussions that had the ability to bring other legislative work to a halt. This year, we could and we probably will see the issue once again jump out front and center in Colorado's political life. easy to know where the lines are drawn on guns today. It seems almost blindingly obvious. There's the gun rights side that will show up to fight against more or less any new restrictions on the possession or use of guns. It's not my fault the United States government got in an arms race with the people. But you guys do not get to then sit there and say that the Second Amendment gets to get curtailed and our rights get to get stomped out in the name of, you know, safety. And then there's the growing movement of gun violence prevention, people who argue that the current situation is just unacceptable. Right now in your country, 30,000 people are dying. You are killing them if you are not passing legislation that is going to keep people safe and prevent gun violence. We are afraid of going to school and we are afraid of being shot at school. But to understand where we are now, it's important to think about how we got here. And to get into that, I called an expert. I'm Stephen Aaron. I am the president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West and a professor of history emeritus at UCLA. Aaron told me the West was actually a pretty violent place. So movies got that part right? Yeah, I mean, kind of, yes. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is that violence was largely for different reasons. It was because of a combination of factors including the fact that settlers were at war much of that time with the tribes whose land they were taking over. As well as ethnic and labor strife tied to the industrialization of the United States and of the West, tied to the mixing and mingling of diverse peoples, and tied to still lingering conflicts and resentments from the American Civil War. A lot going on there. and. Guns were enough a part of life in the U.S. that when Colorado became a state in 1876, 
the right to bear arms was put into the state constitution. Huh. So 100 years after the U.S. Constitution, what they do? They just reprint the Second Amendment? It's actually a bit more detailed, and I came prepared. Uh, it's Section 13. Ooh, are we doing a legislative reading? <laughs> yeah, right. The right of no person to keep and bear arms in defense of his home, person, and property, mm-hmm. or in aid of the civil power when thereto legally summoned, shall be called in question. But nothing herein contained shall be construed to justify the practice of carrying concealed weapons. Okay, I think I followed that. It's pretty interesting. So at statehood, creation of Colorado as a state, they were concerned about ensuring people had this affirmative right to have guns. But it's so interesting to me that they threw in that they opposed concealed carry and put that in the Constitution. And of course, now concealed carry is legal. Mm Mm-hmm. What else do we know? Did the state set any other gun laws in those early days? I talked to another historian, Jeff Hunt, and asked him that. He's a retired history professor at the Community College of Aurora. Gun laws in Colorado have largely been driven by federal law. And it's tied into Second Amendment. Federal law is where the issue is discussed and not addressed or addressed. One interesting thing he said is that guns like we've mentioned, were very present in Colorado and the West in the early days. But he said they weren't really an identity thing, the way they've sort of become today. It wasn't a political issue. And it wasn't generally how people defined or demonstrated their masculinity. I I really think Hollywood had a lot to do with it. So we live in this state that was shaped by gun ownership from its earliest days. But maybe only in the last few decades, in a way, has this right that again, traces all the way back to frontier days, really become an identity issue, one that can define you and your politics. And this question of how and where guns are appropriate is still very much up for debate. Now let's talk about a pivotal moment that really changed everything in Colorado when it came to gun policy. The year was 1999. If you are just joining us, two young men apparently dressed in long black trench coats opened fire uh, about an hour and a half ago at a high school just outside of Denver in Littleton, Colorado. When we talk about gun policy in Colorado, I really feel like we do have to begin with the Columbine High School shooting. And at the time, it was the deadliest high school shooting in U.S. history. The attackers killed 12 students and a teacher before killing themselves. The most striking um, vision here at the school is parents searching around frantically for their children. Uh, They are trying as best they can, school officials, to put lists together of which students are here. Obviously, it was a moment that shocked the whole country. And for me personally, I would place this and 9-11 as moments that I, as between 13-year-old became aware of this kind of violence. It definitely put Colorado at the center of American gun culture. There was incredible fallout, sadness, and I think when you talk to people who were in Colorado at the time, they can usually remember where they were when they heard this was happening. It was kind of like the, for people who were alive, the Kennedy assassination, and, and you mentioned 9-11. Yeah. And since it was in April, lawmakers in Colorado would have been at the Capitol at the time in session. What did it mean to have this happen during the legislative session? I wanted to know about that. 
and what lawmakers did in response. So I called former state Senator Norma Anderson. She's a Republican, and Columbine High School was actually in her district. I was sitting in committee, and the lobbyist for the governor came up and I and came in the committee and said, I need to talk to you. And she took me out in the hall and told me what was happening. It's hard to imagine what that moment must have been like, because again, it's just not the kind of violence that most people in America were used to hearing about at the time. Anderson said she was shocked and that everyone at the Capitol was just processing this tragedy. One lawmaker had children who went to that high school and people were looking for answers and wondering how this could have happened. About a week after the shooting, she actually went inside the school. The sheriff let me go in and in the school and very deep. I should not have done it. Uh, I still think about it because there was still the blood on the floor and everything else. Anderson is now 90 years old. And she said in her entire life, this was one of the most significant moments. I've been held up at gunpoint twice in my life, but I I swear going into Columbine was the worst experience. It's just a horrible situation, and no one ever recovers. I believe that. This was more than 20 years ago, and Colorado was a much more conservative state politically at the time. Republicans controlled state government. So how did lawmakers respond? Did they think anything needed to change with Colorado's gun laws after this really shocking event? They did, but lawmakers didn't act on anything that year. Anderson said a big reason for that was because the shooting happened in the last few weeks of the legislative session. But the following year, in 2000, they were ready. Republicans controlled both legislative chambers and the governor's office, and they passed quite a few bills. Republicans did. So, like what? Well, it's a pretty long list, close to 10 bills. And when I talked to Anderson, she actually had it all ready to go for me. She pulled up some of the bills. So lawmakers created a state background check system for gun purchases. Okay. They cracked down on straw purchases. So that's buying a gun for someone who shouldn't have one Mm -hmm. or for someone else. They required parental consent for a minor to have a gun. Mm. And they banned convicted felons from owning guns, even after finishing their sentence. And then they also did some school safety things, like requiring schools to have safety plans and share information about potentially dangerous students with law enforcement. That's a fair amount of legislation for one session. And not to point out the obvious, but it's kind of hard to imagine at this point a Republican legislature in Colorado or in most states making those kind of sweeping moves now 20 years later. Was it controversial at the time? Was Did it go like we would expect it to go now? Anderson says it actually wasn't controversial, or at least she doesn't remember any of the bills being difficult to pass. Looking back, she said people had questions about how effective things are going to be, but she doesn't even remember extremely long testimony. And she said she is really glad that lawmakers did pass those stricter gun laws that session. But she also says seeing the tragedies since Columbine, she doesn't think this problem can be fixed with new laws. She thinks society's whole approach to guns and gun ownership has just gotten out of whack. I raised two boys and a girl. Uh, We had a farm, and of course we had a gun in the closet. 
a rifle. My sons knew better than to go in and, and see it. We bought them BB guns so that they would learn when they were eight years old how to handle a weapon. You teach respect for weapons. And I don't see that being done anymore. Colorado politicians, Republicans like Anderson and obviously I would assume Democrats too, joined together on stricter gun laws after Columbine. What was the reaction from the public once that was done? Voters appeared to want to see stricter gun laws as well. That fall, so the year of 2000, voters approved an initiative to require background checks at gun shows. And that passed with nearly 70 percent of the vote. So clearly there's widespread agreement on some reforms. And again, this is still a red state at that point. It was an eight point victory for George W. Bush in the presidential race that year. I do think it's worth noting, though, that during that time, among gun rights supporters, there was a scramble to figure out how to best respond to Columbine. Hmm. So the NRA was actually holding its annual convention in Denver. Oh, wow. And that was pre-planned, and it was scheduled for just a few weeks after the Columbine shooting. But NPR uncovered these secret tapes that indicated the NRA was even considering canceling this convention. At the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. And that tape was obtained by investigative reporter Tim Mack just a couple years ago, actually, that this surfaced. But anyway, as I learned from Tim Mack's coverage, the NRA chose to double down and to go ahead with the convention and to really keep making the argument that gun restrictions wouldn't stop mass shootings. And they would, we've heard this line many times, just punish law-abiding gun owners. That decision has shaped how future gun debates have played out in Colorado and, I think, across the nation. Colorado lawmakers and voters passed those new laws in 2000 in the wake of Columbine. But what happened after that? Really nothing for more than a decade. So the next time gun policies come up at the state capitol in a very significant way was in 2013. And sadly, again, this was the legislative session after major tragedy. We had the Aurora Theater attack, followed later that year by the Sandy Hook shooting. And then lawmakers came into session shortly after that at the start of the year. But when the debate occurred at the capitol in 2013, Unlike 2000, there was not unity or agreement between the two political parties. And the stakes politically were very, very high. I think the the question for the Democrat caucus is, are you really ready to stake the 2014 elections on the gun issue? Now, by this point, Benta, you were working at the Capitol as a reporter. What were Democrats trying to do that year? They had a number of bills, a package of bills, but the two most significant One is expanding background checks. So it was a universal background check bill, and it makes people go through a background check before buying a gun from a private seller. So kind of an expansion of something they had done in 2000. Yes, that's right. And then the other measure banned high-capacity magazines. So that's magazines that hold more than 15 rounds. Got it. By this point, 
gun politics had gotten fully polarized. Mm-hmm. You were kind of hinting at this. So I assume to do anything, obviously Democrats needed control of government and they did have the trifecta as we call it then. But did it seem like they were confident? Like they thought that this was going to be an easy victory, that it was going to go fine if they did this? Definitely not. The Democrats had taken control of the state government a year before. Hmm. They didn't have big majorities. Not every Democrat is in agreement on these types of policies. Their caucus wasn't unified. So yes, I think there was trepidation. They knew it was a huge political risk. There aren't very many state lawmakers at the Capitol today who were there during that time because of term limits. But one of the lawmakers who was there in 2013, is a state senator now, that state senator Rhonda Fields. And she was the sponsor of the high-capacity magazine ban. When I look back at it, I knew it was going to be difficult because I knew that I was going to be up against the NRA and those folks that felt like I was coming out after their, their rights to bear arms. And I knew that it was going to be a challenge, but I didn't expect the volume of response from people across the state kind of challenging what we were trying to do. It was wild. We knew it would be contentious, and I've covered a lot of controversial issues and hearings at the Capitol. And those days do stand out among everything I've covered. Those 2013 days. Yes, people who opposed those bills, who felt their rights were being limited, they packed the hearings, the hallways, it was just wall-to-wall people. Picture going to a rock concert or something, you know, it's like that close. And it wasn't just inside the Capitol, there was demonstrations outside the entire time. Here in Civic Center Park, the air is full of honking horns and eager protesters waiting for the final decision of the Colorado gun bills. Dozens of protesters in cars driving by line the street in front of the Capitol building waving signs and honking horns. This is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, and I just think that we should be able to live freely and with guns, we can protect ourselves, even though it might be more dangerous. And so when you see all those people that came to the Capitol, they stormed the Capitol. When I say storm, it wasn't like insurrection or anything like that. But I've never seen the Capitol be so populated like that. And then we had a, a dust cropper playing, you know, going all around the dome saying, Hick, don't take out guns. I wasn't anticipating all of that because That's not how we do legislation down here. And I can just say hearing car horns from dawn till dusk, that puts everyone on edge. And on top of that, Field said she was getting death threats. Her her daughter got threats. So did a lot of other Democratic lawmakers to the point where she said it was just very difficult for them to do any work at the Capitol, not just on the gun bills, other Mm -hmm. policies as well. But Fields says she stands by this legislation. She feels like it saved lives and she is very committed to this issue. Her son was killed by gun violence. So she's been personally impacted by this. None of those threats in the 2013 session, I'm assuming none of that turned into actual violence, right? No, but some of the political threats definitely came true. We're going in legislators' districts. We're going to go in their districts and tell gun owners, this is what politicians are doing to your Second Amendment rights. That's Dudley Brown, and he was from the group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. 
And after the legislative session, that is exactly what his group did. Seven News, starting with breaking news. Within the last hour, State Senator John Morse concedes in his recall race. Tonight's historic vote leading to the first recall in state history. John Morse was the Democratic Senate president at the time. So this was a major, major victory for the gun rights side. Oh, wow. And like you heard from the newscaster, the first recall in state history. So a pretty big target there. Right. And then another senator was ousted. And then a third resigned when it looked like she would likely be recalled. And three is really no small thing in a chamber that only has a few few dozen members. Exactly. But that wasn't it in terms of the political fallout. The next year, Democrats lost control of the state Senate. So basically, they passed these bills and then lost the ability to advance their agenda for the whole state, really, for a few years because of mostly, it sounds like, the level of blowback over these gun bills. How long did that shadow hang over Democratic politics? a long time, but also since it was a split legislature, they really didn't have the political votes to do it even if they wanted to. To do more gun reforms? That's right. Mm. But after 2013, years went by without Democrats even introducing any legislation on the gun issue. For Republicans, I would note that they put bills every year to repeal the 2013 laws and broaden gun access. Democrats always blocked those bills because Democrats controlled the House, Republicans controlled the Senate. During those years, obviously, mass shootings kept happening around the country. It felt, I remember, just like a faster and faster drumbeat of this violence. And it feels like the side favoring gun restrictions did start getting better organized. I think that's absolutely true. We saw that in Colorado and nationally. Another thing that contributed to that was just more people are impacted by gun violence. And that leads to more activism and people getting involved in politics and trying to talk to their lawmakers. And one of the big examples in Colorado is Tom Sullivan. Mm -hmm. His son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. And Sullivan testified at the Capitol in support of the high-capacity magazine ban in 2013. So that was the bill Fields was sponsoring. How did he end up there? Had somebody reached out and asked him to go? No, he said he just read about it in the paper Uh and decided to show up at the Capitol. And he said prior to the Aurora Theater shooting, he hadn't especially been involved in politics. (laughs) But Alex's death changed that. I was involved with my union, so I was involved with, you know, voters' rights and workers' rights and not thinking that guns and the policy and what was out there was something that I needed to be concerned about. So obviously he didn't stay on the sidelines very long. That committee testimony he gave must have just been the beginning because, as I see every day, Sullivan is now a state senator. Yes, he initially started as a state representative. He's a state senator. And he said he was just tired of watching Democrats play defense on gun policy. It was, I need to do something more. We need to, you know, go on the offense with this. We actually need somebody, you know, on the inside who's who can hear what these people are talking about. And when I say, you know, the legislators, the, the leadership, the governor and all of that. Hear what they're actually saying, not what is being regurgitated to us outside of meetings or in the press or something. And... That's when I started to decide to run. Sullivan first won office in 2018, and the first big policy he tackled was this red flag gun law. 
This is a law that allows a judge to order police to take someone's guns away if they're considered to be basically a danger to themselves or others. That bill passed when Sullivan was first elected, but the year before he was elected, mm-hmm. lawmakers tried to pass it and it failed in the Republican-controlled Senate. But it actually, and this was fascinating, it had a Republican sponsor in the House, Cole West. So this was this bipartisan bill. Huh. When Representative West was backing this bill, it really inflamed gun rights supporters. Uh-huh. And he lost his seat to Tom Sullivan. So there was a lot of politics going on there just before Sullivan got to the Capitol. Well, and you know what's really interesting is nationally you see some weird bipartisan politics around these red flag laws where it's extremely popular in Florida, which is now a quite red state. Indiana has one that it uses pretty often. So it doesn't always split blue-red so cleanly, although here it did turn into a pretty polarized issue. Other than the red flag law, which happened the first year Sullivan was in office, In recent years, Democrats have passed some other stricter gun laws. One measure requires people to report lost and stolen firearms. Another requires people to safely store firearms in places where children could be around. Mm -hmm. And then the state also gave local communities the right to set even stricter gun laws than the state. To say, hey, city council, you can pass your own laws on this. Yes, that's right. And then the state created a new office. It's called the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And the goal of that is to do research on gun violence and shape future policy. And throughout all of this, Sullivan has been front and center. Hmm. He and Fields, because they've been so directly impacted by this losing children, they've really been kind of a moral compass for a lot of Democrats on this issue. And Sullivan said he sees his role as making sure that his party does not forget about this issue or push it to the side. He's talked to leaders and his caucus to say, we're going to talk about this, just like you talk about transportation every session, health care, mental health, education. And the reason being is that it, the, the topic has elevated itself. It keeps getting bigger. It keeps getting closer to everybody else that's out there. I think we don't, uh, you know, address the public health crisis that, that is gun violence. People die. That's why we have to do something. Okay, Benta, you just described some of what they've done in just the last few years. Somewhat smaller bills like the reporting and safe storage But now we're in this moment where Democrats have had total control of state government for four years. And it seems like during this time, gun policy has gone from being totally taboo to being a part of the agenda that Democrats work on bit by bit or maybe larger than a bit by bit from one session to the next. I think that's exactly right. And it's also driven somewhat by the fact that mass shootings keep happening in Colorado. In 2021, there was the King Super shooting. And that's when lawmakers passed the lost and stolen mm-hmm. and some of those other bills. All of these policies, though, do still hit a deep divide that exists in the state. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we're a blue state now, but there are still a lot of Republicans and unaffiliated voters. And there's a big political divide, a cultural divide and a divide between urban and rural communities in terms of how people view gun policy. I don't think enough people are heard. The only people that are being heard are the advocates that don't own firearms that are against them. That's Representative Ryan Armagost, and he's a freshman lawmaker. He's from Berthoud. He spent 22 years in the military, and then he worked for a decade with the Larimer County Sheriff's Office, and now he's a security consultant, and he trains people to use firearms. The people that own firearms 
uh, for sport, for hunting, for anything, for protection, aren't being heard. And we need more of those voices to come forward to uh, have a seat at the table. You know, Armagost may be right that the gun violence prevention people are gaining the momentum in the last couple of years. But I want to push back on the idea that everybody who owns a gun opposes new gun restrictions because I've run into plenty of conservatives who like what they've seen from the red flag law. In contrast, I also know plenty of liberals who have increasingly decided to arm themselves in the last few years. So it's not always a clean divide like that. I'm always surprised when we're out talking to voters how many different views they have on issues that don't align with one political party or the other. And I think that can be true even on gun policies. But I think it's clear that in recent elections, though, that the people Armagost are talking about, gun rights supporters, Mm -hmm. voters have not selected those politicians to be at the state capitol. The gun rights supporters politicians. Basically, what I'm saying is Republicans have lost quite a few seats this last election. And so we have fewer Republicans at the state house this year Uh than ever in the state of Colorado. Yeah, and I think that says that if guns are a really motivating issue for conservative voters, like they were in the past, it's not necessarily helping conservative politicians lately. Yes, because you're weighing that with a whole other slew of issues that voters are basing their decisions Mm -hmm. on. I think that the changing political landscape and these huge Democratic majorities is starting to change what Democrats think is possible for them to pass on guns. As we just described, the tragedies of Columbine, the Aurora Theater shooting, more recently the attack at the Boulder King Supers, each served as a motivator, as a spur for lawmakers to pass stricter gun laws in Colorado. With each round of new laws, opponents have pushed back with more or less impact depending on the year. And that brings us to now, where once again the legislature is working in the shadow of another mass shooting this time at Club Q in Colorado Springs. And it sounds like Democrats, at least some Democrats, want to push further on this issue than they really have before. Nothing's been introduced yet this session, but we're hearing a lot of the ideas that are out there right now. Lawmakers have talked about wanting to increase the purchasing age for certain firearms, requiring a waiting period for buying firearms, Both of those policies would be big fights just on their own. But so far, they're being overshadowed by an even more controversial idea, and that's banning so-called assault weapons. You've been trying, Ben, to to nail down what this bill would actually do. We've seen drafts, but it's still changing. It's always tough to figure out what exactly will be the details of something that hasn't been introduced yet, like this proposal. But I wonder if there's also just a huge importance to the general idea of banning a whole category of guns. It is, yes. That's much farther than the state's gone before, even though we haven't seen the bill yet. But Mm -hmm. it seems that this is a step that at least some Democrats say they're ready to take. I talked to Representative Andrew Basnecker. He will be one of the main sponsors of this bill. And this was the first bill that he got ready to go before session. It's called a pre-file. So it's those bills you get together before session even begins. And he describes this bill as a moral imperative. And unfortunately, there hasn't been a year that I've been elected that there hasn't been a mass shooting in our state. You know, uh, when I came in in 2021, it was shortly thereafter that the Boulder King super shootings happened. And then, of course, most recently, the Club Q shootings. And we just see this happen time and time again. So I think it's really just a 
result of feeling like enough is enough, like so many folks out there, and we need to have a conversation about these particular firearms. We should say that assault weapon isn't a term the firearms industry exactly uses. It's more of a way that some gun violence opponents talk about certain types of guns with features that may make them fire more rapidly or more powerfully or more accurately with certain features. But I think we can all call to mind what we think an assault weapon looks like. A part of this proposed bill is describing how you would define an assault weapon. But we wouldn't be the first state to take up this issue. If you look around the country, nine other states have some type of assault weapon ban. States like California, New York, Massachusetts, Hawaii. So with the bill they're working on here, Bento, what would it exactly do? Would it actually ban people from having these guns at all? Would they have to go and turn in the weapons they've already got and see them get like smelted or something? Or is it just aimed at stopping people from getting new firearms? It's the latter. So as it stands now, what lawmakers are potentially considering is banning the sale, purchase, importation, or transfer Hmm. of these so-called assault weapons. Like you said, the idea is to keep people from getting new assault weapons. Hmm. But, and this is very key, it would not require people to give up the firearms they already own. So you wouldn't have to turn anything in. Obviously, the people who support gun rights are going to fight this bill with everything they've got. This is a new frontier for them. I'm sure they're trying to hold the line. But it does seem like they've not gone as far as they could, because if it actually tried to take away people's existing guns, that would put it on a whole other order of magnitude. Right. I don't even want to think about that, Andy, so... <laughs> well, I don't think it would work. I don't think that the state would have the manpower, or the police power, or the police cooperation, frankly, in many areas, to go and take guns out of people's homes. And again, they are not talking about doing that. Also, people could still go to a different state to buy these assault weapons and bring them back to Colorado. So just drive to Wyoming. Yes. And exceptions like that really have some of the gun rights supporters and other people questioning what is the whole purpose of this bill? Is this actually going to be effective in keeping our communities safe? And the short answer is I don't think it's going to be effective. This is Republican Representative Dave Evans. He's from Fort Lupton. He spent a decade as a police officer in Arvada. He opposes this whole idea of a ban. But practically, he also thinks it's not a productive discussion for lawmakers to even have. When we know that we have limited resources, right, we can't do everything, having that practical wisdom to be able to say, okay, is this policy actually going to work or are we going to waste a whole bunch of time and effort and money and resources discussing something that's just a messaging issue that's not actually going to make our community safer? So Evans here is basically dismissing this as a messaging bill, something that he thinks Democrats would pass to please their base to show, yes, we're tackling this issue, but not something that he thinks would practically impact things on the ground. What I've heard from people who support this kind of bill is that even if you're not getting rid of every existing gun and solving the problem all in one go, you're putting one more barrier in the way. You're trying to limit somebody from being able to wake up and decide they want one of these guns and they're going to go get it and use it to carry out a mass attack. It sounds like, even with all that up for debate, the backers of this bill are ready to have this fight. It's not going to be like in 2013. We know that the state's not so closely divided between conservatives and liberals, Republicans, Democrats. But we do know that this stands to absorb a lot of energy, that it could take a lot of time, and that if it is introduced as planned, it will be really a center of this legislative session. 
and a lot of other big policies not related to guns are still being discussed behind the scenes and haven't been introduced yet. Time gets very limited towards the end of session. We're already a month in. And Republicans will try to block everything they can in protest of something like an assault weapons ban. So there's delay tactics. And it's not just Republicans. I think it would generate so much testimony from across the state. Well, Benta, as you mentioned earlier, Senators Sullivan and Fields have been these moral compasses for Democratic gun policy at the Capitol. Are they involved in this issue yet? What are they saying? Senator Fields is listed on this draft bill as the Senate sponsor. Hmm. So even though a decade ago in 2013, she faced threats and a lot of fallout from sponsoring the high capacity magazine ban, that did not deter her for putting her name on this bill. I talked to Senator Sullivan, and he doesn't think an assault weapons ban is the most effective approach. So he's not out in front leading the way on this. Obviously, there's this core of Democrats, a good number of them who are ready to sign on to have this debate. Do you think that the majority of Democrats, the majority of the legislature, for that matter, are ready to do that? I think we'll find out. I think most Democrats not going out on a limb here, support an assault weapons ban in principle. Not everyone, but I think most. And we're hearing that not every Democrat feels like this will be effective. And what Representative Evans said is an effective use of time. And I think they're worried it will detract from other things. And it's a question of does leadership allow it to reach their desk? What kind of maneuvering is done to discourage potentially the sponsors from actually going forward with this. I think there's a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes right now. By the way, assault weapons ban never been introduced in the legislature as far as we know, but it's been talked about in the past, right? Yes. The last time it really came up was after the King Super shooting in 2021. And Senate President Steve Fenberg talked about wanting to do something He represents that part of Boulder. Mm -hmm. He's different than Senator Sullivan, for instance, because Fenberg didn't run for office planning to be deeply involved in gun policy. That wasn't the issue he ran on. But when the shooting happened in his district, it really affected him. But obviously did not introduce any legislation like that. I think at the time, Democrats felt like it wasn't the best approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, One person didn't feel like it would even be that safe to introduce it. They thought it would be too volatile. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to work on other policies like the lost and stolen reporting and safe storage. So now Fenberg, as Senate president, has a lot of influence over how bills go through the Capitol, the timing, what gets juggled. What do you think? Will he actually try to help this bill get through if it's introduced? Will he stand in the way or what will he do? He does think a lot of people in Colorado are looking to Democrats with these new huge majorities to take action on this issue. This is about life and death. And everybody knows somebody or in one way or another is somewhat connected to a a horrible, tragic event, Um, not to mention the guns that are used in suicides or for, for violence on the streets. So I I just think after years of inaction, when everyone sees it happening on their TV screens all the time, it galvanizes people. And I think that's especially happening in Colorado because we have changed as a state politically, but also we've seen more than our fair share of tragic events. So Fenberg says he does think Colorado should ultimately be moving towards an assault weapons ban. But he says there are other policies that he thinks will save more lives faster. And then he also sees downsides to a bill like this. 
He said that it will cause a rush on gun sales. He also thinks it could be tougher to pass other gun policies. And he doesn't want to unnecessarily perpetuate what what he feels is a real growing cultural divide in the country between rural, urban, Republican, Democrat. Public affairs reporters Binta Birkeland and Andrew Kenny of Purplish, CPR's political podcast. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get your podcast and online at CPR.org. When we come back, Andy's investigative reporting into disparities involving Colorado's red flag gun law. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Around half of the red flag gun orders issued so far in Colorado have stemmed from cases brought by Denver police. A CPR News investigation found that DPD has embraced this policy far more than any other jurisdiction in the state. CPR's Andrew Kenny reports on what that meant for one family. Richard Boulware was a well-known presence in Denver for more than 40 years, first as a photographer and eventually an executive at the city's airport. Well, he had accomplished a lot in his life, and uh, I always kind of looked up to him because he was very successful. That's John Boulware. He had a few things in common with his eldest brother, Richard. They both had an interest in guns. John also had a distinctive career running his antique shop on South Broadway, But despite John's admiration, and the fact that the brothers even lived in the same townhome complex, the two became estranged. Really didn't have much to do with each other. In fact, we didn't talk for 15 years. He was getting older and was very hard to deal with. As Richard reached his 80s, John started to hear disturbing things. Richard was stockpiling guns and food. He was convinced that mob rule was coming for Denver. I had no idea that uh, he was as deeply involved in that culture. The truth really came out when Richard injured his knee. John started helping him get around. It was a brotherly thing to do. At Richard's townhome, John found a night vision scope aimed at the door, some 5,000 rounds of heavy-duty ammunition, and rifles and pistols all around the place. He wanted to show me his favorite gun. Richard ended up pointing the loaded weapon at John, And it also turned out he'd recently shot a hole in his own computer. It was the kind of family crisis that countless people face every year. Richard wasn't making explicit threats, but another of his brothers, Tad, worried what could happen if, say, a delivery worker came to his door late at night. He'd open the door and there would be somebody there in uh, an all-brown uniform and not realizing it's simply a UPS individual and he'd liable to shoot him. The brothers were able to force Richard into a mental health facility. John took the guns to his place. But when Richard got out, he told the cops the weapons had been stolen. He charged me, called him up, and charged me with felony theft. John and Tad had a recording of Richard agreeing to surrender the guns. That got them off the hook with Denver police. 
but the cops went further to ensure Richard couldn't rearm himself. They brought in Colorado's red flag law, which the department's been using frequently in cases where they believe someone's a potential danger. When the legislation was passed, uh, the department's decision was to fully embrace it. That's Division Chief Joe Montoya. The department's filed about 90 red flag cases in the last three years. Montoya says all Denver officers are trained in the law, but there's a dedicated team that investigates and files these cases. It's a significant investment for DPD, larger than any other that we found by a Colorado law agency. It's just not a matter of typing out an affidavit. It's all the background work that goes into this individual to support what you're putting into that. In the Bulwares case, a detective filled out a detailed 13-page petition and filed it in court. A temporary order kept Richard from getting the guns back or buying new ones for a few weeks. Richard was appointed an attorney and a guardian who did thousands of dollars of taxpayer-funded work to represent him, while on the other side, the city attorney's office worked to get mental health records and build its case. Eventually, Tad called into a hearing where the judge finally ordered a one-year gun ban. The whole operation uh, could not have been handled better. Everybody had a chance to speak. John and Tad didn't know much about red flags going in, but they came out feeling that the judge's order was exactly what their family needed. (sighs) Relief. Total relief. Could not have been happier. John hopes that if they had to, his family would do the same for him as they did for Richard. I'm all about Second Amendment rights and I believe in it. I'm a gun owner myself, and I've told uh, Tad, even though he's uh, two years older than I am, that if I ever get like Dick to come and get my guns, take them away. Richard Boulware died of natural causes last February, alone but unarmed. After everything that happened, John and Tad still honor him as their eldest brother. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. You can find all of Andy's reporting on the Red Flag Gun Law at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today for Colorado Matters, with special thanks to Megan Verley and Shane Rumsey. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.